Welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Climate Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. Over the past two years, the idea of putting a price on carbon as a means to reduce greenhouse gas emissions has gathered new and often unexpected support from across the political spectrum. In 2017, a group of former Republican leaders offered up a proposal for a national carbon tax. And this January, top economists, including all the living former Federal Reserve chairs, pledged their support for such a plan on the op-ed page of the Wall Street Journal. While Congress has remained polarized, carbon pricing proposals have recently emerged from lawmakers on both sides of the aisle, and oil companies such as Exxon and Shell now publicly support a carbon price. On today's podcast, we'll take a look at one of the most challenging and controversial aspects facing any effort to price carbon, and that's getting the carbon price right. When done correctly, carbon pricing can speed emissions reductions and fuel economic growth. Yet carbon cap and trade markets, which have been operating for over a decade in Europe and in parts of the U.S., have at times struggled with pricing, highlighting the challenges likely to face future carbon pricing initiatives. Today's guest is an advisor to carbon cap-and-trade programs in California and the Northeast. Dallas Bertraw is chair of California's Independent Emissions Market Advisory Committee and a senior fellow with Resources for the Future. He's also currently a visiting scholar here at the Climate Center. Dallas, welcome to the podcast. Andy, thanks. It's great to be here. So you've played a role in developing some of the major carbon pricing systems in existence today from California to Europe. Tell us about your work on carbon markets and your history with some of the major cap-and-trade programs. Well, I started my career at Resources for the Future just after the 1990 Clean Air Act amendments had passed, which created the seminal cap-and-trade program for sulfur dioxide emissions, which has been dubbed the Grand Experiment. That program led to a precipitous reduction in acid rain. Uh, It was a very successful program, and... Outcomes were achieved at costs much lower than people had expected. That became sort of the template or model for negotiations around possible cap-and-trade applied to carbon dioxide emissions. And uh, that's what leads us today to thinking about the use of carbon pricing in in emissions markets. So the major CO2 uh, cap-and-trade programs we have today all got their start within the last 10 or 15 years. What brought them about? Well, after the Kyoto Protocol was signed, there was an international commitment to try to achieve uh, reductions in greenhouse gases, and trading was, on an international basis, was the basis for doing so. Uh, The experience of the SO2 market and a subsequent NOx trading program led to thinking that the same type of tool could be applied to squeeze carbon dioxide emissions out of the economy and do so in a cost-effective way. Now, I just want to take a step here and just stop for a moment and briefly discuss the difference between cap-and-trade and a carbon tax as different methods of pricing carbon before we go any further. Yeah, there's confusion about that, but there really doesn't need to be. They both are about putting a price on carbon and sending that price signal to firms and to consumers so that they substitute away from carbon-intensive activities. Um, The the difference is that a carbon tax will fix a price and put that price per unit of emissions, Uh, but then you don't know exactly the quantity of emissions you're going to get. And a cap-and-trade approach will put a, a 
emissions limit in place and firms can trade, which has the advantage that we expect firms that can reduce emissions at least cost to be the ones to do so, and they can buy emission allowances from other firms. But then you don't know exactly what the price is going to be. Mm-hmm. And this this context uh, for the discussion between a price instrument and a cap or quantity instrument has framed nearly a half a century of discussion in mm-hmm. the economics literature. So all of the markets, the cap and trade markets, have faced challenges related to the price of emissions allowances. Why can it be so hard to get the carbon price right? Well, in the cap and trade markets, it's not certain what that price is going to be in the first place. And what is at stake is the ambition that's, a, that's embedded in the number of emission allowances that are issued. What is going to be the emissions cap? And um, that will determine what the price in these programs is. So let me just take that one step further. Why is getting the carbon price so fundamentally important? Well, if you take this from the perspective of the industry that's going to be regulated and affected by the introduction of carbon pricing, they are deeply concerned that they might be put at a competitive disadvantage, especially compared to jurisdictions that may not be regulating carbon or may not be putting a price on carbon. And it serves no purpose to have... uh, economic activities and their associated emissions leave the jurisdiction that's trying to regulate emissions only to go into a different jurisdiction and uh, and emerge there, maybe with production processes that are even less efficient, leading to an increase in emissions. That's a possibility. So industry has been very concerned that the carbon price not be set too high. The reality is, though, in every market where we have tried to put a price on atmosphere resources from sulfur dioxide to nitrogen oxides to volatile organic compounds, and now to the several carbon dioxide markets we have, the dilemma is that the price has been lower than expected and Mm -hmm. often falling in real terms. So the real problem with respect to the implementation of these markets and to their influence in helping us address the climate change is the prices have turned out to be lower than expected. So then you don't get the climate impact, as you said, that you, you're going for. That's correct. You it's don't get the enough. You don't get the motivation for innovation and behavioral change that you hope for from a carbon price. And you also said on the high side, if the prices are too high that you feel that you might lose manufacturing, or the jurisdictions might lose manufacturing, they'd also lose, obviously, jobs that would go along with that as well. That's right. And, uh, you know, it's not going to, no one's going to be a popular uh, politician th- through the loss of jobs, especially if you cannot, if at the same time, you could say that emissions outcomes haven't really been affected. So this is, these are the challenges in trying to design these carbon markets. So looking at the environmental aspect for just a moment, have carbon markets been or shown themselves to be additive, meaning what portion of carbon dioxide emissions reductions can be attributed, in fact, to carbon markets and not to other factors, other policies that states or countries may have? Well, yes. For one thing, we know that even a small carbon price is going to have uh, effects in terms of the variable operation of a industrial process or a firm. So a modest carbon price is going to have modest behavioral effects and a large carbon price is going to have large behavioral effects. But even a small carbon price has important effects on the expectations of firms in terms of the kinds of investments they make because it's a signal that we are committed to moving away from a, an economy that's you know uh, does not put any constraints on the use of carbon and entering a carbon-constrained future. And that really changes the investment behavior of firms. Um, But uh, 
if the price is too low, then you not only remove this incentive for investments, it also has these other deleterious effects that it undermines the confidence in the market in the first place. And, you know, not everyone has been on board on the use of pricing of environmental externalities. And the traditional way to approach these problems is through regulation. And without putting these two approaches in juxtaposition or making them be enemies of the other, there are many who are mistrustful of the use of pricing as a strategy to address environmental problems. And when they see low prices, prices that are lower than expected and, and you know falling over time in these markets, they will feel that their markets aren't working and it leads to a lack of confidence in those markets and leads them to turn to other regulations, increasingly to other regulations. And it creates a sort of vicious cycle that when, when the prices are low and falling, we see the introduction of other regulations. And these other regulations tend to push down the price in the carbon market because they're helping to achieve those very same emission reductions. And it's a vicious cycle that results. These could be state renewable portfolio standards that require a certain number of wind or solar energy, for example? That's a perfect example. Or energy efficiency measures by local governments or you know, fuel economy standards for cars. Uh, these are all really important measures that achieve real emissions reductions. Uh, we think less cost-effectively than can a carbon price. Um, so uh, the question for some becomes, do we do one or the other of these two approaches? My viewpoint is really quite different to come to recognize that these are companion approaches and mm-hmm. one enables the other. So let me ask you this. What is the right carbon price? Should it be based on market drivers or should it be based on something such as the social cost of carbon? Well, that's a great question, Andy, and it's a really hard one. And um, I I will look at an audience sometimes and say, what is the right carbon price? Does anybody in this room know? Uh, I, I like to joke that my son is now out of college, but I, between the time when he was in middle school and when he left college, the accepted mainstream estimate of what the carbon price was more than tripled, and it has doubled again since then. And um, That's the social cost. The social cost of carbon. Well, the social cost of carbon stands in for what we think is the damage on, on average across the world from the introduction of an additional ton of carbon emissions. And to an economist, that's a really important concept because it's a marginal cost, and we want to regulate such that marginal benefits and marginal costs equal each other. So that becomes like a signal, the level to which we want to regulate and impose costs on the economy. But this price isn't really knowable. We're we're learning a lot about it, and we know it's substantial. Uh, But I'm going to venture that the next time there's a serious assessment at what the social cost is, that it's going to double or triple from our current estimates. It could go the other way, but I think most of the science literature is definitely pushing this estimate north. And so we don't really know what the carbon price is. And more importantly, it's not really plausible to implement carbon pricing today at a level that equates the social cost of carbon when it's up in that order of magnitude. Mm -hmm. And, And the reason is because such an approach is not politically or economically sustainable. That politically, if one jurisdiction were to go this alone, that jurisdiction would be taking huge steps forward. I mean, we look at what California is doing as one of the leading jurisdictions in the world, or the EU, if you will. Um, They still have prices that are way lower than even the current accepted and mainstream estimate of the social cost of carbon. 
Is that what's economically bearable in their in their eyes? Yeah, that's what's politically bearable, politically bearable. and economically bearable because of this problem of leakage, which we already addressed, which is if they put the price at a high level, there's the risk that economic activity is going to flee from their jurisdiction and and emissions are going to leak out and occur anyway in some other jurisdiction. So there is a important sequencing, in my mind, sequencing of policies as we try to build towards a global regime that will address uh, carbon in a comprehensive way and increasingly introduce carbon pricing, I hope, in a comprehensive way. Let me ask you specifically about the Northeast uh, cap-and-trade market. That's REGI, or the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative. That's in, I believe, nine northeast states. Mm-hmm. Um, when it was implemented about a decade ago, it had a price floor. That was an important part of the plan. Why is that? Well, the, the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative is a modest program affecting only the power sector with fairly low prices, in the nine northeast states, but it has had an outsized influence on the global stage and continues to do so as a model for a really well-designed program and a program where these states are doing as much as they can when they're trying to act alone. I mean, they're in a coalition of nine states, but they are still subject to an open electricity market where electricity generation from other states, such as Pennsylvania, can come into their markets and... um, uh, steal the gen- the generation from that otherwise should be occurring in the Reggie region, uh, and potentially do so with a higher carbon content. Uh, but nonetheless, the program has survived, and uh, one of the reasons for that is that they looked at the experience in the EU, which the EU was the first jurisdiction to introduce carbon pricing in 2005, and. What we observed at the beginning of the EU is that prices shot up when people were really, in the very outset of the program, people were not sure what this was or how it was going to work, and then rapidly fell down to virtually zero, a zero price in that program. So a lot of people had made investments expecting there to be some meaningful carbon price, and suddenly those investments didn't look so good. Why did it go down to zero? Because there were too many allowances, and mm-hmm. literally, I mean, it, it was a complicated start to the program. There were uh, nearly 20 languages involved. Mm-hmm. Many of the jurisdictions that were involved had only paper processes at that point. It was not electronic. It was, you know, people look at it as a trial phase to the program. But nonetheless, we learned some important things from that trial phase of the program. And one of them was that the fact that the price could fall. And if the price fell, then all your efforts to establish this program were to, you know, came to no end. And importantly, uh, organizations that made investments to try to comply with the program, maybe, for, you know, from a good citizenship point of view, those investments were uh, rendered meaningless. I'll tell you a little anecdote. I was at a university in England around 2007, shortly after this price had, the price had fallen to zero. And on the stage, this uh, plant manager uh, for the university was pointed his finger right in the face of the economists, and he was red in the face and spitting mad, saying some language we won't put into this uh, podcast. This is a family program. (laughs) Yes. And he said, you made me look like a fool. I went to my university leadership and told them to realign their capital budget in order to replace the boilers on our campus, several of the boilers on our campus, because this price of Pricing carbon was both the right thing to do and it was going to have economic importance for us as a university. And now the price has fallen to zero and you made me look like a fool. 
And I'll tell you, I think any kind of public policy where people try to comply with the leadership that's suggested by the fr- that framework and then they end, end up looking like a fool, one has to pause and think, well, what is the design of this program and what are we actually accomplishing here? Well, Reggie was in a position to do that, to learn from the experience in the EU. And so they said, well, one thing we don't want is for after all this work involving nine states and ongoing negotiations, we put this in place. We don't want the price to fall to zero. We don't know what the price is going to be, uh, and we don't want to be, be that wrong. So they introduced a price floor. And the, that was possible because they did another innovation, which has now had you know historic, <laughs> historic implications, is that they introduced an auction. So previously in the sulfur dioxide trading program and in the EU, Emission allowances had been given away for free, so-called grandfathering. They'd been given away for free to the regulated firms, and this led to the to a, you know separate spun out a separate conversation about windfall profits. That firms were getting these allowances for free, but then turning around and wrapping them into product prices because prices would go up, reflecting the opportunity cost of using these allowances. You know, it's like they they would wrap in the price of fuel. They were acting it. as if they'd paid for them. Correct. And, and that was reflected in their product prices. They were charging customers in their product prices for something that they themselves had received for free. And this there was there were many formal investigations in the EU establishing billions of euros in windfall profits at the early stages of the of the EU trading program that went to the electricity sector. So Reggie looked at this and said, well, we don't want to do that. So we'll auction these emission allowances, and that's really good because there's a lot of revenue, and we can use that revenue and reinvest it in program-related purposes like energy efficiency and other types of things. But once you think about, well, how do you design an auction, uh, uh, you know, uh, if, you, if you look on eBay, for example, you're going to see that there's, you have the opportunity to put a minimum bid, minimum acceptable bid. And actually, and throughout the auction literature, this is, it's widely recognized that putting a so-called reserve price or a minimum acceptable price is a key feature of good auction design. So Reggie looked at this and said, well, we're going to put a minimum price into this program. And that turned out to be really important because, once again, as in every other atmosphere resource market, the prices fell, quickly fell. And in this case, they fell to the price floor and rode along that price floor for 11 consecutive auctions over a two-year, longer mm-hmm. than a two-year period. If that price floor had not been in place, the Reggie price would have gone to zero, and that program uh, probably would have died a premature death. Um, but instead, it rode along that price floor until their, a program review came and they were able to tighten the program and change their ambitions and made a lot, took a lot of things into consideration, and the price subsequently rose off that price floor. And what's really valuable about this Reggie model and why it's had such outsized influence is, first of all, the introduction of an auction. I had uh, pr- people at the staff at the European Commission say to me incredulously, how did they do that? How was that possible? They didn't think it was possible to auction allowances. Politically possible. Politically possible. But now the EU has done a 180, and they are now f- committed to 100% auction uh, in the electricity sector with few exceptions for uh, some countries that, that get extra time in that transition. So they have totally bought this model that was tested in Reggie. And the second point is about the price floor. That design auction with a price floor was written almost verbatim from the Reggie uh, regulations into the draft Waxman-Markey legislation, if you remember at the federal level, that never passed the House of Representatives. A decade ago. A decade ago. And then also um, surfaced in the design of the California program and in Quebec. So now we have all the North American programs have an auction, important role for auction for most or for a large share or all of the allowances. 
with a price floor. And in each of those programs, the price floor has been binding in at least one or two auctions. And then subsequently, the price has risen off that price floor. So these, this auction design with a price floor sort of gives these programs buoyancy during a storm. And then when the storm passes, there can be a program review and regulators can, can revisit the design of the market and their ambition. They can then uh, go forward with the program. When you start out with a market, as you're talking about the, the European uh, ETS, mm-hmm. and the price goes down right from the start, does that mean that when when the number of allowances were calculated prior to the beginning of the market, that essentially emissions were much lower than people expected them to be, and thus there was less need for the allowances. Is is that a a fault of the people who design it that they get their estimates wrong? Well, that's really well framed. And, and directly the answer to that question has to be yes. The reason that the price is low is because there are more allowances than, than were than are needed, and emissions are lower than what were expected. But the really interesting question is to ask why. Why do allowance, Why do emissions fall at a rate that's faster than were, could be anticipated at the time you design these programs? And frankly, it's because it's, it's for good reasons. I mean, we, it's actually for hopeful reasons in my mind. It's because organizations and state and local governments and firms and churches and Boy Scout troops are all engaging in this challenge of how to address climate change and doing innovative activities uh, that I would call companion activities to the introduction of a carbon price. As a matter of fact, everywhere where carbon prices have been introduced, the the uh, row has been plowed previously through a plethora of what we'll call companion policies. So sometimes economists come to this and think, design carbon pricing and think, well, you put this price on and you get the price right and then you're done and that's the most efficient possible outcome. And they'll ask, well, how is it theoretically possible that you could do something else that would be a complementary policy, a complement to the carbon pricing? Would it make it would it be more efficient or do anything better? And more often than not, the literature has said, nope, carbon pricing is as good as you can do. But the reality in, you know, away from the chalkboard and in the real world is that these companion policies came first. And in many of the jurisdictions where these conversations happen, carbon pricing is the complementary policy. And because, as we've already Mm. discussed, you you can't really, at this point in time, put a carbon price at a level that's going to do all the work for you. You're going to have these companion policies continuing to play a really important role going forward. And what's refreshing is the uh, creativity that uh, local jurisdictions come up with, not always choosing the most cost-effective thing to do, I mean, we want to sort of resist the temptation and do everything that occurs to us. But uh, subject to rigorous evaluation, um, what these jurisdictions are doing are making earnest efforts to try to achieve emission reductions. And when they do so, this has the effect of pushing down the the allowance price. It sounds like it's hard to actually factor that in when you're designing a market because you don't know what all those factors are going to be. Yeah, yes, that's right. People are uh, infinitely creative. But one of the dilemmas that follows from this is the so-called waterbed effect. The waterbed effect, uh, especially this metaphor has taken hold in Europe, is if you imagine a waterbed holding uh, the allowable emissions that are going to be contained in the the trading program, but if you push down on one part of the waterbed, uh, another part of the waterbed just goes up because an emissions cap is an emissions floor. It is not just the maximum possible emissions, but it can be the absolute number of emissions that you're going to have in place. 
So, you know, this causes sort of a conundrum because uh, that means that if you have something like the Church of England, which has made a commitment to uh, offset all of its emission reductions, the church, you know, for the best, of, we would think the best of intentions, uh, it's having no effect. Hmm. So you've, you've made impotent all the efforts of the schools and organizations and firms and, and local governments to try to reduce emissions because the overall level of emissions are capped. And if they push down, emissions just go up somewhere else. Got it. And this precipitated real criticism from the NGOs uh, about, well, are these carbon markets working? And even further... Wait, so, so the Church of England was part of the, an overall system within the UK? Yes. Is that what you're saying? So, so they were lowering their emissions, so other sectors of the economy said, we don't have to, and it was a wash. Well, that's the effect. And they were taking it all on themselves, very good-heartedly to do it, and somebody else was benefiting from it. Yeah, I'm just using that as one example of which mm-hmm. there are a thousand. water betting, yeah. Yeah, that's the waterbed effect. Um, and a- NGOs and environmental activists have looked at this and said, you know, to put a, a strong point on it, they will they start to hint towards the conclusion that this carbon pricing business, this is a fraud. You you could you could imagine this being put in place as a way to protect business so that they don't have to really do anything beyond the most trivial effort. And furthermore, anything more that we do isn't going to really have an effect. Well, of course, no one who's dedicated their lives to try to address climate change and design these programs or work on these programs. Nobody is approaching the problem like that. But it does give you pause in terms of like, how are these programs hmm. working? And that's one of the really strong contributions of the Reggie program with this idea of a price floor, that at least in the vicinity of the price floor, if prices fall to that neighborhood, then there is this possibility of um, additionality of the efforts of, of subsidiary jurisdictions or individual states within, uh, within a trading program to achieve additional re- emission reductions. Let me ask you one more thing about Reggie. So obviously uh, there's been a price floor, but there still has obviously been uh, a, a view that there's more that needs to be done in Reggie. And Reggie just uh, recently rewrote or or, or established their standards for the next decade through 2030. They're more ambitious. But one thing they have implemented is something called an emissions containment reserve. It's a very important development. Why? Right. Well, Reggie continues to be a laboratory of ideas and I think having an outsized influence. And in this case, what the emissions containment reserve is, if you can imagine in your mind's eye a price floor, uh, that the allowances, it's a hard floor, no allowances will be sold into the program at a price below that price floor. What Reggie has done is said, well, we're going to take 10% of the allowances and create a price step above the price floor. And we're going to say that those allowances won't sell for any price above this higher price step. So you have effectively 90% of the allowances that won't sell for price below the price floor, but another 10% that won't sell for any price lower than this higher price, the price step. And you see then as the the subsidiary actions by the states, et cetera, are measures that tend to um, reduce the demand for emission allowances, all for encouraging reasons, and push down the allowance price, then it hits this price step earlier than it would if we waited until it went all the way down to the floor, and it starts to uh, share the benefits of these local governments and others uh, between the economy through a lower price and the environment through fewer emissions. So it turns what at one time, remember at the outset, we set, we framed this as a choice between a price and a cap. Mm-hmm. What Reggie has done 
is envision this as a hybrid in which there is an adaptable cap. And when, when prices fall, there are fewer emission allowances that come into the market. Uh, you know, if, if regulators uh, design a program and notionally balance benefits and costs and say, this is what we can afford to do, this is what it's going to cost us, and this is our environmental goal, and then it turns out to be much cheaper to achieve that goal, you'd think that they might try to buy additional emission reductions. And that's what this new design... This is taking those out of the market. Yeah, that's right. It's taking them out of the market. And uh, so Reggie has introduced this price step, and um, uh, I think it's gotten a lot of attention in the other North American programs. So they haven't, it hasn't been adopted there per se, but all these programs from um, uh, Reggie and in California and Quebec have other elements to start to look like, like a, a price responsive supply of emission allowances. For example, in California and in Reggie, they're in the eventuality that prices rise to be much higher than expected, some some quantity of additional allowances will come into the market. Um, that we that you know I think that's unlikely in the California program currently with the way you know the prices t- tend to be low in these programs. But you can't see the future for sure, and a good program design should anticipate what we can't see today the, that it might happen. So the floor keeps the price from going too low, and this new system in Reggie limits the number of, of allowances in the market as a further step to, to keep the price up to a reasonable level. That's correct. That's exactly what it does. So fundamental question here, does this remedy the waterbed effect that you talked about? Right. Well, it importantly contributes to a remedy to the waterbed effect because in the when prices are in the vicinity of the price floor or this price step then additional actions by the states or by uh, local government w- can have a meaningful effect on reducing emissions but what i really want to kind of take that question and and f- reframe it slightly differently in that as an economist we have come to this We've tried to make a contribution to this, addressing the challenge of climate change through thinking about economic approaches. And I think the use of economic approaches is imperative because uh, we, everything we know tells us that really addressing climate problems, it requires great ambition and it's going re- to come at great cost. And it's really important that we find ways to do so that are cost effective, as cost effective as possible in order to achieve as much ambition as quickly as possible. But the mistake that we've made is to imagine economic approaches in place of other approaches that are also happening. And that's what the waterbed effect does is essentially uh, invalidates any other kind of effort that might be made. Mm-hmm. What, what's really brilliant about the emissions containment reserve in the Reggie region is that, in fact, it's sort of designed to accommodate and even enable uh, other actions by other actors within the regulated region. So, for example, in Reggie right now, almost every state has state-specific policies that are unfolding, renewable portfolio standards or um, clean energy standards in New York State, uh, etc. And um, the state of Massachusetts actually has a state law that requires emission reductions at their regulated facilities in a recent um, court case uh, directed the state agencies to a, a, enact additional measures. Those measures happening underneath the Reggie cap. So you might think that would lead to a perfect waterbed effect, enabling Maryland to emit more because Massachusetts is going to emit less. But that that problem is exactly what was anticipated by Reggie and this uh, price step uh, with, through the emissions containment reserve is meant to address it. And I take great encouragement from this because it's now a rethinking of how carbon markets can work and how they can enable further action rather than um, eroding the contribution of further action. 
Now, some recent initiatives to implement a carbon tax in particular have failed. Washington State, which is generally progressive, has had two carbon pricing ballot initiatives fail. And also uh, talking about cap and trade, Ontario very recently backed out of the California cap and trade program. What's going on? Well, that's right. You've picked on a couple bad pieces of news, but that's not the only news that's out there. I would point that two states have now lined up to join Reggie. New Jersey is actually rejoining Reggie after having previously left. And Virginia, which will now be the uh, largest state in the Reggie program, will be joining in 2020. Virginia, a historically a coal state, is going to be joining Reggie. Um, these jurisdictions are doing so because they recognize that it's in their self-interest to do so. Not, it's not only about addressing climate change. I don't think any jurisdiction in the world can do this for strictly altruistic reasons. Rather, they are in a position to, to see the future and recognizing that efficient economies, clean economies, uh, are the pathway toward where investments are, are going to occur, where we're going to see technological innovation. And uh, those states are you know, getting out in front of that parade. Uh, on the West Coast, very exciting news last week was the state of Oregon uh, introduced legislation that has support of the governor and uh, was a result of a, of a six-month process involving both houses of the, their legislature that will adopt well that would make Oregon the second state in the world, the second jurisdiction in the world to have economy-wide and comprehensive carbon pricing. Um, Oregon is doing it for. Oregon's purposes, Oregon first, if you will. But one has to note that the design of that Oregon policy uh, makes it very plausible that it could link with California. So there are some encouraging things happening also. Um, what, When one looks at Washington State and the um, two times that they were unable to enact through, the, through ballot measures carbon pricing, it gives me a reason to think about, well, how do we make progress towards uh, and climate policy in general. Um, and I think that the uh, ballot approach or proposition is probably not the way to do it, at least with respect to putting a price right in front of people's faces. I think you can ask people, do you want our state or our jurisdiction to make a commitment, a serious commitment to addressing climate change? That's a meaningful question for people. Um, but to put a price right in front of their play face and put it on the ballot is is just odd. There's not, There's nowhere else that we do that. The only time in society where you see something like that is when you're standing one time a week in front of the gas pump and you see these numbers roll by and nobody really views that as a you know favorable experience. It leaves you with a weird impression there. You know, people want their political leaders to make good decisions. People want to be involved in that conversation. Yes, let me help establish the priorities. Yes, let me help establish the level of commitment here. Now, take care of business because I've got to get back to the soccer game. Hmm. And the, that's what I think our political leaders have to do. But um, is it because this is such a politicized issue that that's why they felt they had to put it in front of voters? I just think it was, um, you know, <laughs> economists have sometimes not been that helpful. We, you know, we have not been that helpful in that we tend to think, you know, on the chalkboard or in the classroom, we tend to think of that putting a carbon price in place will incentivize all these behavioral changes throughout the economy and behavioral changes. And 
in order for that to occur, the, the carbon price has to be right in front of your face, just the way the gas price is right in front of your face. But out in the political world, that's just not really how decisions get made. And so it makes it, it's t- too salient, if you will. It's it's blowing it all out of proportion. I mean, yeah, a carbon price is important. It's, it is as important as the next thing in terms of the effect it's going to have on, on uh, prices in the economy. But the next thing we don't vote on and we don't put in front of people's faces quite like that. So I'm not undemocratic in any way when I talk about this. I just think it's blown all out of proportion. And well, what, I think historically, to draw a parallel or a sort of a parallel, I don't think that many fossil fuel subsidies that are out there were ever put in front of voters, but they were implemented. Well, I, I think that's right, Andy. I mean, and there's it's such a complicated problem that my preferred approach would be to see jurisdictions uh, in, inform, have informed discussions and informed debates, either on the ballot or in the legislature, about their commitment to addressing climate change, recognizing that it's in their long-term self-interest to redesign their economies for the 21st century, and then uh, delegate to expert agencies to design the programs and the policies that are going to help them achieve the commitment, because that's the way we address all sorts of other types of complicated social problems. And so even uh, legislating uh, a specific tax is questionable in my mind because you don't know what the right price is. And that information that's going to inform that is going to be emerging over time. Some of my colleagues have looked at ways that a tax could adapt to new information in order to help achieve a goal over time. And that's quite analogous to the way Reggie has designed its cap and trade program such that the price on that program sort of adapts and the, and the quantity constraint adapts to new information over time. But uh, the best programs in the world and the best approach, the most democratic and the one approach with the best process in my mind is embodied in California where there's an expert agency that uh, is reasonably transparent and certainly tries to be transparent uh, and r- runs the, a series of policies that, are, that it tr- tries to engineer and coordinate in order to achieve its firmly stated long-run climate goals. So it, it, there is, it's not just an economic question. It becomes a political implementation question. If take a jump from what you just said right now, and we've been talking a lot about the positive attributes of, of carbon pricing and what it's brought to us. But you have written that carbon markets are a second-best solution. Why is that, and what are they second-best to? Well, what we use this term, second-best, meaning that uh, a policy is being implemented is not uh, efficient on every margin in the economy. It's not affecting behavior everywhere in the economy at the exactly the efficient level. So the, the term second best, although it gets used in everyday speech all the time, it really has a pretty specific meaning in, econo- in the economics literature. Um, and in an economic model, a carbon price is the only policy that is potentially first best. But I say that carbon pricing is second best because the real world departs from the models on the chalkboard. For reasons we've already stated, like it's impossible to get the price at the level that where it can be doing a, a, an efficient amount of work. And also because 
uh, even the organization of institutions in our society doesn't allow that price signal to get passed through in just the way we hope that it would. There's all sorts of market power, vertical market power in some industries. There's all sorts of relationships between state and local government with developers on one side of the counter and regulators on the other side of the counter and you know, a lot more concern about the interests of incumbent property owners than new developers or whatever. And everywhere you look, there's all sorts of ways that it turns out the real world is a complicated place. So what we want to do is take the lessons that we can from economics and economic theory and then find out way to apply them to uh, the real policy setting. You have also written about a concept you call sequencing, and I think you actually mentioned it earlier in this conversation, and that is essentially the idea that, that markets, technology, interest groups, what have you, all need time to adapt to be able to aggressively address carbon emissions and climate. As, you've, as you, you said, you can't start out with a really carb, high carbon price and expect everybody to jump on it. These things take time. Can you, can you talk a little bit more about this idea of sequencing and how that may lead to greater ambition and, I guess, higher carbon prices as well over time? Yeah, well, we've thought about this formally, actually, and the, the reason for thinking about it is that there is so much criticism from the economic side of, of the role of these companion policies and the fact that they're inefficient. They are inefficient in many cases, so what are they doing? And we discover that they do more than one thing. These uh, policies are maybe addressing uh, emission reductions in the present, but they may also really be important for the emission reductions that we can achieve in 2030. They may be delivering air quality co-benefits, maybe co-benefits that are particularly important for disadvantaged communities. They may be putting uh, administrative structures in place that allow us to enforce uh, programs such as tra tradable emission allowance markets that previously didn't exist because that requires a whole data system and it's important to evaluate the steps we take today with the long-run goal in mind. And the, the idea of policy sequencing is to try to carefully ask, are the steps we are taking today enabling us to take further steps tomorrow? I think that becomes a, a useful criteria criterion for uh, evaluating policy rather than just sort of narrowly saying, oh, is this the, the most efficient policy that we can think of on the chalkboard? Let me ask you one final question. And thank you very much for all this insight to this point. Simple question, at least very simple to ask. Are we going to see a national carbon price in the future in this country? Well, uh, uh, I'll say yes, but you didn't ask me when. And so uh, I may not be <laughs> alive long enough to see it. I hope that's not the case. But I, I do think that we will because um, I think we might be – this is – climate policy is sort of like they sometimes describe the army where nothing ever changes until everything changes at once. Uh, and so it may be that we're getting to a point, a critical point where we're going to see a carbon price. I don't think – I'm not a fan of the approach that's suggested by some that we try to introduce a carbon price and it's a big political poker game in which we trade or horse trade where we trade the carbon price to um, strike down the authority to regulate greenhouse gases under the Clean Air Act, for example, because as I said already, I think these companion policies – play such an important role in terms of enabling us to get to this point and, and enable us to go further. So, but I do think we'll see a carbon price. And, but also to be even more squishy for Anya, Andy, um, 
we may see a carbon price that doesn't look like a carbon price. Like you don't recognize it as a carbon price in the way we usually talk about it. That is, you know, a, a carbon price actually has attributes, and we may see many of these attributes emerge in policy, even if you don't see the final carbon price in, added on to things you buy at the grocery store. So things like emissions intensity standards uh, introduce a price that can be uh, around credits that can be traded um, uh, in the production of uh, vehicles or uh, renewable portfolio standards is another example of a of effectively a price that it gets traded in it. And it's sort of an informal carbon price. So I'm being a little bit squishy here, but again, it comes back to this question of policy sequencing. I think we'll see increasing element of formality in that carbon price. And and to be honest with you, I think what you're talking about is will we see a price that's denominated in uh, dollars per ton of carbon and see that. Um, on a national basis, pass through major portions of our economy. And I do think we're going to see that. Dallas, thanks for talking. Thank you, Andy. Today's guest has been Dallas Bertrand, a senior fellow with Resources for the Future. Learn more about carbon pricing and markets by checking out research on the Climate Center's website. Our address is climateenergy.upenn.edu. And for updates on new publications and events from the Center, subscribe to our Twitter feed, at Climate Energy. Thanks for listening to Energy Policy Now, and have a great day.